Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking with hamstring injury researcher and lecturer at the School of Exercise Science at the Australian Catholic University, David Elpar. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Valve Performance, makers of the Nordboard. So if you haven't heard of the Nordboard already, don't worry, I'll explain, it's really simple. So the Nordboard is a fast and accurate way to measure hamstring strength. So as practitioners, we can do very little about athlete age and previous hamstring injury. But what we can do something about is our athlete's eccentric strength, and that's where the Nordboard comes into play. It isn't going to get your athlete's hamstrings bulletproof, but what it is going to do is going to give you the right information so you, the practitioner, can make the right decision at the right time. With the Nordboard now available and being bought by the likes of David Joyce at the GWS Giants in the AFL, if you're interested in finding out more information, you can email info at valdperformance.com or visit valdperformance.com. Thanks for tuning in to episode 73 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So today we've got David Opar discussing hamstrings and hamstring injury. So we also discuss uh, Nordics and um, practical hamstring injury prevention, uh, as well as the Nord Board uh, and its integration into a uh, injury prevention program. So just before we get onto the chat with David, just want to ask you if you are one of those listeners who is tuned in regularly, and you listen via iTunes, um, it'd be great if we could get a couple more uh, ratings and reviews on iTunes. So I think we've got currently about 30, so to get a couple more would be great, just so uh, it kind of raises the profile of the podcast and more people can access it or know about it and then access it. So thanks very much for your support uh, over the last couple of months. Um, Here is the interview with David Elpar. Hi guys, thanks for tuning in to the Pacey Performance Podcast. So today I've got David Opar coming from Melbourne, not Brisbane, Melbourne. Um, so I just want to thank David for his time um, on, a, on a Monday evening to chat to me. Um, so welcome to the podcast, David. Thanks for having me, Rob. Pleasure. So do you just want to give us a little bit of a background on, on who you are, if, if people aren't aware of you and your, your education, your background uh, and what you're currently doing? Yeah, sure. So I'm an exercise scientist, um, educated a, a bachelor degree at RMIT University. Um, and you know, after that, uh, or after I completed that, moved up to, to Queensland, to Queensland University of Technology to do my PhD under Dr. Anthony Shield up there. Um, and really from that point on, um, my focus has been on hamstring injuries and hamstring injury research. So I um, started that up with, with Tony and now I'm back down in, in Melbourne at the Australian Catholic University. Uh, and so we have a, a, a growing research team down here in Melbourne as well. So a, a, as an exercise scientist, we often, or as an exercise scientist working in sports injury, we often get confused as being physiotherapists. Um, but we really try to apply a lot of the principles in exercise science into, um, in this case, hamstring injuries, which is, has been somewhat successful for us. Mm-hmm. So you've been like we were discussing before, I've been all over the world seeing, uh, seeing how practitioners work and, and getting out and about on, on plenty of uh, plenty long-haul flights. 
Yeah, so I mean, as I said, we've been fortunate enough to have some some things that have been of interest um, clinically and, and to practitioners, and so that's a, uh, afforded us the opportunity to go and meet with a lot of really good people working in really good places. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we've been very fortunate from that perspective, but it, it allows us to keep the applications of what we do from a research perspective um, at, at the forefront of our mind uh, because we see and, and are able to speak with practitioners and clinicians really regularly. So it really does sharpen uh, the focus for our research to try and make sure that it has transference and uptake as quickly and as readily as possible. Mm-hmm. So with you, with you travelling around, obviously seeing lots of practitioners, as we know, and your, your research itself, what, what hamstring injury trends are you seeing uh, across different sports that, uh, that you're coming across? Look, I mean, even you know, not, not just from seeing it um, up close, but also the published literature. You know, the UEFA studies will tell us, uh, the recent ones from Xtrand and his colleagues, suggest that the rates of injuries in professional European soccer uh, are not going down, if anything, they're, they're trending slightly upwards. Um, and we see a, a similar thing here in the Australian Football League, uh, in the AFL, um, which is Australian rules football, uh, where the, the rates of hamstring injuries, first-time injuries, aren't necessarily regressing downwards. Now, the, the caveat to that is that, uh, at least in the AFL, it seems like the re- rate of recurrence is trending downwards over the last number of years. Um, so... It still seems like identifying those at risk and implementing some of the best preventative strategies is still something that's either eluding us from a scientific perspective or the application and implementation of that is, is something that's quite difficult in the implied environment. But it's no doubt you know, still an issue and still something that a lot of people, including us, are grappling with. So, so new, in, new hamstring injuries are going up, but recurrence is going down? Is that what you mean? Yeah, look, that's the, the, that's the AFL data. Okay. So it looks like recurrences over the last probably 10 or so years now are trending downwards. Um, but it doesn't really seem to be much of a change in first-time injuries. So they're either remaining relatively constant uh, or, as I say, with the UI, UEFA data suggests that they might be trending slightly upwards. So, so why is that, do you think? Uh, there's a, a heap of possible explanations and to identify... The, the root cause for a problem that's been around for so long is really, really difficult. Um, I think what we've got with uh, developing scientific understanding and evidence bases, that's being probably matched with an increase in the demands of the game where hamstring injuries are, are most prevalent. And so whilst we're learning a lot of new stuff and hopefully implementing some new things as well, what's being asked of the players whether it's from intensity within games or shorter turnarounds between games and less recovery, the combination of those factors tend to have largely offset. So whilst practice is probably getting better, um, we're also then getting athletes having to do more as well. And so it might be you know, a constant ongoing battle that's never resolved. It's a little bit like going to, to any place of work you have risk of injury inherent to that job, and it might be that for for footballers or athletes in running-based sports, that risk of hamstring injury is always there, um, and it's that that balance between you know what can we do to prevent compared to how much um, you know we need to maximise and optimise performance as well, and, and they sometimes tend to chide against each other, um, but you know in the ideal world, your preventative strategy should aid performance as well. So you mentioned prevention there, so. 
So what does the research say um, with regards to what practitioners can do to go about trying to prevent injuries, hamstring injuries? So in the, the prevention literature, it's probably actually, if you look at the number of studies, relatively sparse, but the, the main ones that come to mind is Carl Askling's uh, work from more than 10 years ago now um, where he implemented uh, yo-yo flywheel training for the hamstring. So really just a, uh, a piece of kit and a methodology that allows you to augment the amount of uh, eccentric load or eccentric force required during you know, a typical leg curl type movement. So you're really able to overload the eccentric phase. Uh, in Carl's study, they did uh, a pre-season intervention with the yo-yo flywheel in a small group of soccer players and then a, another group who didn't do it. Uh, and you've found some pretty potent effects for the, the intervention group. And so to my mind, that's one of the really early studies that looked at prevention in a scientific way. Um, and, you know, a lot of Carl's work has been focused on eccentric strength and particularly at long muscle length. Um, the, the logical to that are the, the two studies, randomised control trials, um, which have looked at the Nordic hamstring exercise and found that it has, a, again, a pretty potent preventative benefit, not only on first-time injuries, but then also recurrent injuries. So uh, Jesper Peterson and Christian Thorberg and Per Holmich and the group from Denmark published a paper in 2011 that showed that quite nicely. Uh, and then there's recently been uh, a study by the Dutch group in Vanderhorst who've shown uh, a similar finding that Nordic hamstring exercise seems to prevent injury quite well. Now, that's the, the published evidence, and of course, it doesn't preclude the, the possibility that a number of other factors are really important uh, for hamstring injury prevention as well. It's just that we're probably looking at more lines of, of indirect evidence. So, so why is the, have you listed a, a number of uh, studies there looking at, look at Nordics? So why is there so much controversy around their use um, in the field? That's a very good question. Uh, it's a little bit counterintuitive, I think, that there's a, a, a task and exercise that has you know, a pretty strong body of evidence to support its use, uh, yet it seems like when more and more and more supportive evidence comes out, then people are looking for more and more reasons to doubt that evidence. And so, at least from my perspective, that doesn't really make a hell of a lot of sense I think you've certainly got to look at the evidence base and suggest that the exercise does work and does have preventative benefits. Uh, if you don't like the exercise, that's fine, but you need to come up with a, a, a rationale as to why. Uh, and, and the common um, reasons you often hear is that it's single joint, it's only a knee dominant exercise. It involves slow speed. Uh, slow velocity contraction of the knee flexors and, and all these things aren't specific to what is the proposed injury mechanism. And so I think in response to those type of comments, I think you A, just point to the fact that there's two large-scale RCTs that have shown that it's got a preventative effect. But we're also now starting to observe a few more of the, the secondary benefits as well. Um, so Matt Bourne from the, the Queensland arm of the group uh, is just wrapping up an intervention study um, which has found that the, the Nordic is a, a potent stimulus for increasing biceps femoris fascicle lengths. Um, and, and one of our PhD students down here in Melbourne has shown that having short biceps femoris fascicles uh, increases the risk of injury in professional soccer players um, three to 
fold. So I think the, the controversy comes about because uh, people have a bit of a fixed viewpoint about you know, their opinion or perhaps some of their biases. Um, but I think it's just the evidence now is mounting so strongly, both direct evidence and indirect evidence. And so I think people can come up with limitations for the exercise, but ultimately um, it, it does what it's designed to do. And it probably does that by a number of different mechanisms. But you're, you're always going to encounter people who tell you that the exercise isn't functional. Uh, and I think from our perspective, we see it as much more of a structural exercise. It's going to change structural features within the hamstring muscle group that ultimately should have a downstream effect on your risk of injury. Now, just because it's not specific to the injury mechanism doesn't mean it can't have some of those effects. So these people that are um, hammering the Nordics, what, what, what alternative are they offering? Um, if they're not going to do Nordics, are they, are they saying this should be better or that should be better or just saying, you know, I'm not doing Nordics because X, Y, and Z? Yeah, I think that, that differs across, across the board. Uh, I, I think one thing to say uh, early on as well is that there are a lot of different exercises that I think will ultimately achieve very similar adaptation or adaptive responses as you might get from a Nordic. Nordic's beneficial because you can do it in the field uh, and, you know, you can do it partner-assisted. So for large squads and groups of athletes where you have uh, very little time available, it works well. But things like uh, Romanian deadlifts, uh, back extension, single leg back extensions and, and variations around those, and certainly think they're really viable alternative exercises as well. And you wouldn't just use one exercise to try and prevent what is a really, really prevalent injury. Uh, but I think that the alternatives that people suggest, I think some have some real validity to them as well, just from a, a first principles approach. Um, and again, calling on some of Carl's work, which is a great body of evidence now, Carl Askling's, that eccentric strength at long muscle length is really, really important. And I think exercises that allow you to do that perhaps better than a Nordic, like your RDL or your back extension, is, is particularly important to consider at least its inclusion. Um, and then obviously the other one, which I don't think anyone is, is opposed to, is that you need to be able to periodise and manage your, your high-speed running loads as well. Um, so whilst it's the exercise that puts you at risk of injury, ultimately it's a, a pretty important task for performance as well. Um, and so I think well-periodised and well-planned and structured high-speed running and exposure to high-speed running is, is important too. So I think there's a whole range of philosophies that, that people have. I think some of them are, are supported by direct or indirect evidence and others where people are, are just going with a little bit of gut feel. And I think the general consensus is now more and more people starting to put more faith in evidence-based practice than, than just um, gut feel or, or individual biases. Mm -hmm. So what, what are you seeing as in in a typical, <clears throat> whether it be AFL or, or soccer or rugby or whatever it may be, like a typical Saturday to Saturday uh, schedule, so what are you seeing in terms of in terms of research and what you're seeing in the field that how people are periodizing that week with regards to their their high speed running and their exposure exposure to that? Yeah, sure. So we probably have less insights into the high speed running side of things. We we've got a study ongoing at the moment um, where we've got six clubs from the the, the AFL who've given us all their GPS data uh, for the previous season, so all their pre season training. Uh, and in-season training and in-season matches as well. Um, so we're in the midst of wading our way 
through that data and probably have a, a few things in that space in the, in the coming months. Um, in terms of what we see from a practical perspective for, you know, from the outside looking in, in some situations, uh, and in other situations with a little bit more intimate knowledge of the program, I think the, the clubs who are doing things particularly well have a strong focus on uh, increasing the resilience of their athletes to uh, eccentric contraction. And, and so ultimately the, the effect of that is that their athletes are able to tolerate eccentric loading, particularly through the season. Uh, and so exposure to eccentric exercise in whatever form it comes for the hamstrings uh, in season, we believe is really, really important. And I think the clubs that are able to engender resilience to eccentrically induced muscle damage, particularly early on in pre-season, tend to be able to maintain or target eccentric strength during the in-season period. I think the opposite approach to that is clubs who are fearful of soreness or manage athletes away from soreness, particularly pre-season. See an athlete soar, uh, deload or unload them, then bring them and build them back up and they get sore again and they end up with just this continual downward spiral almost towards deconditioning. So I think part of that ties into the, the question that you've asked there in terms of periodizing some of their training and their training loads and training volumes. Uh, in terms of periodizing their running loads, I think there's a lot of different approaches for that and perhaps more than one way to skin a cat. But as I say, we're going to have some data uh, in the next little while that might be able to inform that a little bit better. Just off, kind of off topic a little bit, how are you? How do you see kind of research being used and taken forward and, and used in a practical sense? And, and the reason I ask that is that uh, Liverpool John Moores over in the UK are doing um, kind of like animations and, and things like that to kind of try to bring research to life and get it used in the in the real world. How do you see that kind of thing? Do you see that thing as a, that kind of thing as a positive to to get your research out there and obviously viewed by more people than ResearchGate or those that are uh, subscribing to the journal? Is there anything like that you've seen, or something, that, anything that you would implement to to kind of get that research out there and, and expose as many people as possible to it? Yeah, look, I think that, that as academics, traditionally and probably still. Marketing, for lack of a better term, is, is not a strong suit and not really something you ever really expect to or think you need to develop. Ultimately, you raise a very good point, is that if your information isn't spread as, as widely as possible, then a potential impact is, is muted as well. <clears throat> I think for us, the first step is to always try to make sure that the work that we're doing is practically and, and clinically relevant because we can do a lot of things in the lab that might be interesting, but if they don't have an obvious application in the field, then I think the translation of that work is really going to suffer or it, it won't translate at all just because it doesn't really have a space to fit into. So I think for us it's being staying in touch with our industry partners and asking them questions and to a large extent learning more from them than they might actually learn from us, but seeing what are the problems and the issues that they have. Because I think if you're able to hit on something that is a problem and an issue for a lot of people, then you get a very organic and, and natural spread of your work. 
but I, I sort of go back and forth in terms of um, being able to make the work that you do easily digestible, things like infographics and that type of thing, um, or whether you sort of should stick to you know, the hard science and the hard sort of facts. I think the, the thing that bugs me most about infographics is that people look at it and immediately take whatever's on that infographic almost as fact, and it's really taken the, the critical eye or the analytical eye away from looking at things a little bit more closely because you can have a study that's done well or done poorly, uh, and that can very much influence the results. So I, I'm perhaps a little bit uh, hard-nosed and perhaps a little bit more old school in hoping that people will, will read uh, it perhaps more extensively than they do. But I'd like to think that our, our work can be um, reach as many people as possible to some extent through word of mouth or the fact that we're doing a lot of good things that can be directly applied because that's ultimately what practitioners and clinicians want is information that they can then use and, and implement. So I think that's a, a key feature for us. Do you think that that kind of connect uh, is, is something that's done done well at, um, at present, that, co that connect between researchers and what's practic practically needed in the field? Uh, I mean, yes and no. Okay. Ultimately, prob ultimately, probably not. Uh, and whilst we have a focus on it, I don't think we always do it well either. It, it's something that particularly in the world of sports science and elite sport is difficult because they're two vastly different environments. Now, the university sector is slow-moving and methodical uh, and the world of elite sport is, you know, I needed things yesterday. Um, and so... To, to a large extent, they, they don't connect together well. Uh, and, and by the same token, there's a lot of people who are working uh, clinically or practically who are actually doing things that is perhaps ahead of the evidence base too. Um, so they, they're not an ideal and perfect fit. You actually have to work really, really hard to try and join them and meld them together. Um, but ultimately, good research is going to take longer than what the you know, industry partners uh, and those in elite sport would want, um, but you hope to at least have the trickle-down effect of, of when your work is available, but hopefully it, it, it hits some people and, and, and ultimately changes practice. But, you know, in short, I don't think it's done very well, but I, I think it's, it's very hard to come up with a perfect solution to, to fix that as well. So just one thing that I want to um, get to that I probably should have got in the first minute, really, um, and it's just kind of recapping on on when hamstring injuries occur and, and why they occur. So you just want to give, give us a little bit of a, a kind of expert view on, on both them things? Just before, just yeah, before so, I move on, I probably should have set that start. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> no, no, sure, sure. I mean, so from a, from a mechanistic perspective, it's, it's probably most likely that hamstring strains occur. Well, we know that they occur most often during high-speed running. Um, and it's probably most likely in the, the terminal swing phase of high-speed running as well. Uh, and you've got, a, you know, the hip is flexed and the, and the knee's rapidly extending. Um, so you have a combination of high levels of, of muscle force or activation uh, at, at moderate lengths um, whilst the muscle is lengthening. And so it's probably a combination of those things tied into a relatively rapid lengthening contraction that is probably the recipe for hamstring strain injuries. Um, now, that said, uh, whilst it's an injury that is seen as occurring acutely, 
there's probably a whole host of factors in the lead-up to when an injury occurs that actually leaves an athlete vulnerable to injury. Um, and then once they're in a vulnerable state, then they have to be met with all the right conditions and so on and so forth. So I think it's an important, distinguish or important thing to distinguish is that they happen acutely and, as I say, most likely during high-speed running, during terminal swing. Um, but it's also the lead-up of events to that point in time as well that probably puts an athlete at risk. And, and some of the um, low monitoring work that we've either completed recently or in the midst of completing suggests that there's perhaps a, a two-week window that, you know, a rolling two-week window that seems to be pretty important for hamstring injuries specifically uh, in terms of identifying the, the risk and the contribution of risk that load might play. So, so when you when you mentioned that, what is how are you determining that that risk in the in the two weeks leading up to it? Okay, so we've had uh, a couple of studies again, the, the big AFL one, which I spoke about um, earlier, and then a, a preceding study to that run by um, Steve Dewey up in Queensland and Morgan Williams, who's at the University of South Wales, uh, which has looked at data from a single AFL club across two seasons, um, and so we're able to look at you know, pretty large masses of data uh, and then also get injury reports to see when players go on to sustain a hamstring injury. And so we're able to look at what are some of the common features and factors that we see in those that go on to be injured and those who avoid injury as well. Um, and as I say, we're still working through some of that data, but the thing that is emerging out of that is it's perhaps not necessarily you know a four-week window or an acute to chronic workload ratio um, that might fit specifically for the hamstring injury, um, but it might be more of a two-week window or your week-to-week change in load that is particularly important for, for hammies. So it's that spiking in training load that you mm. see? Yeah, I, like, I think that would be probably the, the, the best way to describe it. Um, particularly Steve's work would suggest that, that it's really trying to identify the spikes and then work out, you know, what the latent period is from that spike in workload and how long your risk might be elevated. Um, but then also the week-to-week change stuff tells us that, you know, your baseline or perhaps your, your chronic workload isn't as, as long as what might be the, the typical four-week window as well. So it seems like there's shorter time frames and, and the spike can be particularly damaging within that window. Cool. So I just want to move on to, on to your... Um involvement with the Nord board. Do you just want to talk to us a little bit about the kind of background behind the product and and where it came from and, and kind of the, the brains behind it, basically? Yeah, sure. So it's really the brainchild of, of Dr. Anthony Shield up at QUT, who I said earlier, he was my PhD supervisor. Um, and so pretty early on uh, in my arrival up to Queensland, Tony... Uh, started talking about you know the idea of, of instrumenting a device um, so that we might be able to quantify and measure knee flexor forces during the Nordic hamstring exercise. And so prior to that, um, we'd done a, a just very small intervention study uh, using Nordics, uh, and I'd had just my, my father-in-law knock up a very basic, simple rig so that I didn't have to hold people's ankles down um, whilst they basically fell forward. Um, and so the, the logical extension from that in Tony's mind was to actually use individual ankle braces 
instrumented with uh, a load cell so that when we strapped people's ankles in and they started to fall and resist the fall through the range of motion, they could actually pull up on some braces or some ankle hooks and that force could then be measured by the load cells and we could get that information just fed through to a computer. The real motivation for us was we thought eccentric strength was an important marker and measure, uh, but to that point in time, the only way we could really quantify it was isokinetic dynamometry, uh, and we had a, a few failed attempts at getting to integrate or integrating that with elite clubs, partly because you had to go off-site to get tested and the athletes had to come um, to the facility for a period of time, um, and to get through a squad of athletes would take us two, two and a half days and so there was a cost to the athlete, cost to the team, cost to the program, um, and then typically the athletes would pull up pretty sore as well, so there was a lingering effect of that testing too. So considering we knew that a lot of clubs would, were doing Nordics, it seemed like a logical exercise to my instrument, and that was really the, the genius behind um, Tony's idea. So we were, we were able to get a little bit of seed money from QUT um, to knock up the original prototype, uh, and from there, had a little bit of a play around, and then we worked on the reliability uh, at QUT as one of my PhD studies. Um, and, and then from there, we we're probably fortunate in a way that the university has a uh, an IP and commercialisation avenue and pathway, which is able to identify uh, the work that's being done at the uni that, that might have potential to be taken, you know, on the on the on, onto a grander stage or, or to a, a larger audience. And so. Uh, at QUT, that was a, a mob called QUT Blue Box, um, and they were great in funding some ongoing research to develop um, more of the science and the evidence base, which was particularly important for them. Um, and that was the the funding that ultimately allowed us to run our, our first prospective study in in the AFL, which has been published now for a couple of years. Um, and so, in that study, we were able to get I think five teams to measure in pre-season and we just looked at hamstring injury rates and whether those who got injured had lower levels of Nordic strength or higher levels of Nordic strength. Um, and so the, the findings from that study to us were probably uh, surprisingly good. We didn't expect to see as strong an association or relationship as we did. Um, and then from there, uh, yeah, the university wanted to continue the research side of things and make sure that from a scientific perspective there was rigour um, and, and then the flow on effect from that was then that there was a, a startup company formed uh, a little bit over 12 months ago now which has been responsible for taking the device and turning it into a, ultimately a, a commercial product um, and, and we've used it now for, for four or five years but for us it works as a, a great tool for a field test of eccentric hamstring strength that can get lots of athletes through in a, in a small period of time. So that's a, a very truncated timeline. There's been a few um, peaks and troughs <laughs> along the way, but it, it's now at a point now where there's something Tony and, and I have worked on for a number of years now is, is now an available commercial product. And so having been involved in that process is, is a pretty cool one. Mm -hmm. So that, the, the connect initially between the, the idea and whether it was going to be used you know, be able to be used practically. That that obviously that connection was was obviously made early doors. Is this something that you guys want, whether it be AFL, soccer, 
and that was obviously a, a positive response to, to mean you could move forward? Yeah, look, I think that the, the, initial, um, the initial work was, was done in the lab, developing a prototype, and yeah. going from there, it, it, it was then, I suppose, the, the, the offer to some clubs to say, hey, would you be interested in trying this, and in return, would you be willing to give us some data? Uh, and I think the, the the feedback we got, at, you know, initially all the early doors and probably all the way through the process has been really positive. Um, but again, it was one of those early triggers for us to to focus on some of the the, the transference of our work. <clears throat> but uh, you know, from there, it's really just you know, it's the interest in it has has grown quite rapidly. And I think the university, I think, did the right thing in making sure that the scientific rigor was there. But ultimately what that did was that there was a lot of people who were trying to get their hands on a prototype who, who at the time just couldn't. Um, so at least for us it was validation that the idea was good. Um, and I think now that there's, there's more and more people who have access to the measure and the device, um, we'll really start to see the, the next level of growth in terms of its use and its application because there's heaps of very smart people out there who are probably doing things that we never thought about or never considered or, or never had access to athletes and that type of thing. So yeah, I think it's a, a really exciting period now to see where other people take this idea and, and what they look to do with that data. Nice. So just to um, just to wrap up, so one, and one last thing, uh, future directions for, for you and, and your research, where do you see your kind of path lying in the, in the uh, next couple of years with regards to hamstring injuries? Yeah, sure. So I've got um, two or three PhD students down here with me at the moment. I think the, the ones that are, are most intriguing and interesting to me is we've got a, a, um, a guy here, Jack Hickey, running a, a, an acute rehab study. Um, and so there's been a, a pretty big increase in recent times in acute rehab studies that have been published. So from um, Gus Rurink and DeVos and, and those guys over in, in – in Holland, direction. Jack's actually looking at whether pain-free range of motion during hamstring rehab uh, is actually necessary, or whether restricting people to pain-free range of motion during the acute stage of rehab or the early stages of rehab might actually. Uh, limit the adaptive response to some of the um, rehab exercises. And so tied into that, we've got Ryan Timmons taking um, serial muscle architecture measures to see whether pain-free versus pain threshold rehabilitation, which is what Jack's coined at the moment, um, has any effect on adaptation through rehab and then ultimately markers that return to play and hopefully in the long-term risk of re-injury. I think Jack's rehab study has just started and I think he's, he's developed a really nice um, you know, algorithm or decision tree for progressing and regressing hamstring rehabilitation and, and we're particularly keen to, to use a, a pretty aggressive approach, uh, particularly for some of the heavily loaded eccentric exercises. Um, and so with a couple of the subjects that Jack's got going through at the moment, I think within five to seven days, We've got these two guys loading pretty aggressively during their eccentric contractions um, at, at this point without any complications. So I think that's, that's one of the avenues that we're heading down. Um, we're doing now a, a lot of work with um, women's football or soccer 
and, and Kate Beerworth, who's the physio for the women's national team here in Australia, looking to see whether uh, markers and measures of hamstring function might have implications for knee joint stability and knee joint injury as well. Um, and Narav Maniar is, is our, our lead for that down here in Melbourne. Uh, and then we've got a young fellow by the name of Joshua Ruddy, uh, who's working particularly hard in a lot of our load monitoring stuff and looking to see whether we can better understand what are the, the factors that could contribute to risk of future hamstring injury. And so that'll involve a combination of you know, internal and external load measures, um, some Nordboard stuff, some muscle architecture stuff from Ryan, really trying to see what are some of the variables that are key for us to measure uh, and which ones inform us best about risk, whether it's from a screening pers uh, perspective or whether it's from an ongoing monitoring perspective as well. So I, I know it's, um, I know people will have a, a real problem in finding your work, but where can people uh, get hold of, of the, the kind of stuff that you're doing and, and the, the groups that you're working with? What's the best place? Yeah, look, yeah I think probably, probably the, the easiest and accessible avenue these days is, is Twitter. Okay. Um, so uh, I don't know, I think it's at David Opar. Um, <laughs> so yeah, not, you know, I get people who, who ask for stuff often through that. Um, so that's normally the easiest place. Uh, I'm more than happy to connect with anyone through that avenue. Cool. Well, I'll um, I'll let you go. And uh, apologies for turning up an hour late. <laughs> <laughs> no, no worries, Rob. Cool. We'll um, we'll keep in touch. And uh, and thanks again, mate. Yeah, no worries, mate. Thanks for having me. No worries. Speak soon. See you, mate. Thanks for tuning in to episode 73 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the chat with David. If you are one of those regular listeners who listens via iTunes, uh, to have a, a rating and review would be great. So just pop over to iTunes, um, whether it's positive or negative, um, just to, to have more reviews on there to get it, get the word out there of the podcast and allow other people to become aware of it and hopefully access it uh, would be great. So thanks for your support over the last couple of weeks, months and years. Uh, and I will speak to you in episode 74.